You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The more we learn about COVID-19, the more questions and worries we have. CalHOPE can help with free COVID-19 emotional support. Call 833-317-4673 or live chat at calhope.org today. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me not. So he returned me because he had 30 days to do so, which is plenty of time to discover you don't love someone. Or, in my case, something. Because, surprise, I'm a CarMax car, who is now back on the market. 30-day money-back guarantee. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. 30-day, 1,500-mile limit. See CarMax.com for details. The more we learn about COVID-19, the more questions we have. The biggest question now? What's next? What will COVID bring in six months? A year? If you're feeling anxious about the future, you're not alone. CalHOPE offers free COVID-19 emotional support. Call 833-317-4673 or live chat at calhope.org today. The art world is an unregulated business. Billions of dollars. It is essentially a money laundering business. You're working with an artificial scarcity of market. And so it's fraught with people cutting corners and things happening. It was in 1995 when Anne Friedman, then the newly minted director of the Nodler Gallery, first met Glafira Rosales at a Soho art opening. Larry Rubin had been pushed out of Nodler a year earlier in a coup that ended with Anne Friedman being installed at the blessing of Michael Hammer. Nodler's sales were flat, the clients were leaving in droves, and Ann Friedman needed new work to help propel the gallery forward. The Nodler, always one step behind the times, was hurtling towards the art world of a new millennium. The gallery's longtime assistant, Jaime Andrade, had introduced Anne to the soft-spoken, polite woman of Mexican heritage. As fate would have it, 
Glafira Rosales had two works of art on paper she wanted to sell. About all that anyone could agree on was that Jaime Andrade was a shy Ecuadorian man of modest height. He was one of 11 children who had come to New York in the early 1960s and found a home in a circle of art aficionados. He'd made his way to Larry Rubin's gallery on 57th Street and worked as the gallery's driver. Rubin had then brought him over to Nodler as a sort of jack-of-all-trades. His job was to do pretty much whatever anyone wanted him to do. As Anne put it in one of her interviews for Vanity Fair, he would do everything from changing light fixtures to running errands. But he always wore a blazer and a tie and went to fancy dinner parties and escorted well-to-do women. He was like a mascot, but I mean that in a respectful way. He epitomized the spirit of the gallery. Despite a faulty grasp of English, after half a century, Jaime was perfectly capable of charming one of those women into buying a painting from Nodler. Andrade's greatest passion was Latin American art. As late as 2011, while the forgery ring was metastasizing amid criminal investigations, the boyish Andrade gave a talk about Ecuadorian art and his 50 years of immersion in it at the Mid-Manhattan Library. The Nodler, in a press release for it, would describe Andrade's longtime friend and dealer David Herbert as, quote, one of the best American portrait artists, unquote. That was patently untrue. But Herbert, upon his death in 1993, would be cast in another role as a central figure in the backstory of Nodler's conspiracy of fakes, possibly aided and abetted by Jaime Andrade, who had just become David Herbert's executor with boxes of documents rich in art world lore. Anne would never quite come out and say explicitly that Jaime may have steered her to the papers that gave rise to a conspiracy ring of art forgers, but more than one Nodler staffer would take umbrage at the way Anne defended him less than forcefully in Vanity Fair. Was Anne implying that Jaime Andrade had introduced her to Glafira Rosales knowing the two works at issue were fake? Or had Jaime done no more than to introduce his boss to a Mexican woman who shared his love of Latin American art? Here again is writer Michael Schneerson. Leslie Feely took a dimmer view of Anne and her treatment of Jaime. She said Anne treated Jaime more like a gopher than a mascot. Quote, he was a very kind, dignified man, but Anne would send him out to get her tampons, unquote. He had a poor education, the legacy of his childhood in Ecuador. Jimmy was a gopher. He, that's, he was. He was a gopher. And he got to know a lot of people in the art business. He had more art in his home, than, but all South American art. That's the Nodler's art handler, Joe Stevens. Andrade rented a ground-floor apartment in an ornate but musty rental building at 17 East 70th Street, literally next door to the Nodler. He seemed to like being on call for whatever needs arose. I used to stay there whenever I had openings because I worked so late. And now I told, I used to go to my wife and say, man, I'm gonna come, I'm staying at Heine's. Because Jimmy, we'd go a call out and have dinner, you know, at 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night after we locked up. And tell me about the apartment that he had. It was stuffed. 
Like this place is three, four times bigger than his apartment. He had a huge and artwork everywhere. Fifty wow. pieces on a wall this big. He had all this African, South American sculptures everywhere, boxes everywhere. You couldn't put another thing on that counter. Wow, that's a packed. He had closets filled with this stuff. He was like it looked like a hoarder. He hoarded everything. Glafira Rosales and Andrade had struck up a friendship based on Latin American art sometime in the late 1990s. At some point, Rosales mentioned she was trying to sell two works on paper by Richard Diepenkorn, the great abstract artist represented for years by the Nodler Gallery until Larry Rubin's departure and Anne's promotion. Did Jaime think Anne Friedman might take a look and tell Glafira what she thought? This was a pivotal moment. The first time Glafira Rosales focused on Anne Friedman as her target for newly minted forgeries. Soon enough, Anne Friedman found herself looking at a pair of classic Diepenkorn drawings. Sadly, that great profusion of Ocean Park paintings and drawings, all those Christmas mornings the staff had described opening brand new Diepenkorn work, had come to an end. Diepenkorn had died in 1993, and his daughter Gretchen and son-in-law Richard Grant, co-heads of the Artists' Foundation, had ended the gallery's long association with Diepenkorn. They didn't much like Anne Friedman. They liked her even less after the coup that put her in charge. Still, Nodler was widely known as Diebenkorn's main gallery. There would be no more primary works directly from the artist, but secondary works, those that had changed hands at least once, were fair game for anyone who wanted to buy or sell them. And Nodler could put buyers and sellers together as well or better than anyone else, given its history with the artist. So when Glafira offered to show Anne two Diepenkorns, the Nodler's director jumped at the chance. Days after Anne's coup in November 1994, a certain calm had come over the Nodler Gallery. Larry Rubin had even agreed to stay on as director until the last day of the year. The old art world warhorse had recovered his spirit somewhat and shrugged off the coup. Perhaps it was time for him to leave Nodler, after all. Gracefully, he even did Anne Friedman a favor by agreeing to take a look at the two Diebenkorn works on paper. Like most of Diebenkorn's work since the mid-1960s, these were geometrical abstractions from his Ocean Park series. When Anne asked where they'd come from, Rosales demurred. Regrettably, she said her client wanted to remain anonymous. That was hardly unusual for works brought in by perfect strangers. Unfortunately, neither of the drawings had identifying marks on their verso. Verso is what dealers call the back of an artwork. No record of the works tracing back to the artist's studio. There was no trace of later buyers and sellers. No auction markings either. In a word, the drawings had no provenance. That was a problem. So, what is provenance? It's the paper trail of what we know about an artwork starting from the time it was created. It tells us who owned it, when it was sold, where it was shown, and so forth. Had Diebenkorn been alive, the issue of provenance for these works would have been moot. 
After all, the artist was the best judge of his own work. He could say in an instant whether these two drawings were done by his hand or not. When an artist died, the primary work he left behind in his studio or home was easy to judge and usually genuine too. So it wasn't difficult for the artist's family or executor to authenticate those works and record them for posterity. The challenge came with secondary works sold after the artist's death. Works bought and sold and bought again. Works that sometimes vanished and then reappeared. Were they real or not? An artist like Diepenkorn posed a special challenge. His Ocean Park works were all beautiful, but also quite similar. Larry Rubin, as it turned out, was underwhelmed by the Ocean Park-esque drawings and Friedman showed him. Quote, I told her I did not think they were good, Rubin later told Vanity Fair, which was to say I thought they were fake. He said the gallery couldn't, or certainly shouldn't, sell them. Not long after, Diebenkorn's widow, Phyllis, paid a visit to the Nodler with her daughter, Gretchen. Anne Friedman had called the drawings to their attention, and the family were worried about them. When Anne laid them out on a table at the gallery, Gretchen and Phyllis stared at those drawings for a long time. They looked quite good. We really were pretty impressed. It was clearly a beautiful piece. I am Gretchen Diebenkorn Grant. My father is Richard Diebenkorn. Despite the exceptional quality of the works, the family felt they were not authentic. You could see the hand of the forger <laughs> in both of them. You look at someone's work long enough, and my entire life, I'm 76 years old, so I, I was alive during my father's career. And you have a sense of it. Not perfect, but you do have a pretty good sense. What I said to Anne at the time was that the problem for me was that they didn't have any soul. They didn't seem to breathe. I just couldn't relate to it, even though it was clearly a beautiful piece. Anne's reaction surprised them. She didn't even thank them for calling attention to what might be fake Diepenkorns. Neither did she suggest she would hand them back to their owner, whoever they might be. The whole question of what the Nodler might do with them was simply not addressed. Of course, she didn't say to Anne Friedman, I think they are fake. Because, you know, in the art world, you cannot call something a fake. Because if you do so, you might be sued for defamation of property. So people are very careful. Giselle Regatau is a reporter currently with the Center for Investigative Reporting. She pursued the Nodler story for several years and came up with a few scoops, starting with the story of Dr. Bernard Kruger. They might say, hmm, this doesn't look right, but you don't quite say this is fake. So it's quite interesting that I talked to both Gretchen de Bencourt as she was seeing this, this pieces as they were about to be sold. And then I also talked to Bernard Kruger, who was looking at the pieces from the buyer's perspective. And in both instances, you see there were several things strange about this. You know, where they were coming from, how they looked, how much they were being offered. All of those things add up to, you know, 
there's something strange happening here. Here's Frances Beatty again. I do remember going to a Diebenkorn show of Diebenkorn works on paper and someone saying to me, you have to be super careful because you want to make sure that you're not buying one of the things that the family has disavowed. And the idea that you would show something. Mother's Day is coming and mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Artesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA thing, let alone sell it, that the family of the artist has disavowed is absolutely shocking. I mean, you have a responsibility to your client, and if something has a cloud over it, the cloud is never going to disperse. Since the drawings were secondary market works, the family couldn't keep Anne Friedman from doing what she wanted with them, which was, of course, to sell them. As Larry Rubin later told Vanity Fair, Anne Friedman could justify selling those two drawings because the artist's wife had not called them fake, nor had Larry Rubin. I wasn't 100% sure they weren't real, Rubin explained later. And you can get into a lot of trouble by declaring something is fake when you don't have the hard evidence. And since I was leaving, I said to Anne, fine, you handle it. 
and she did. Despite the doubts expressed by the family, Anne Friedman sold the Diebenkorn drawings to the perfect buyer. More art fraud in a minute. Hi, I'm Joe Piazza, the host of Under the Influence. On season two of our podcast, we're exploring what it means to be a woman on social media. We're going into different pockets of influencing to talk about how Instagram is a reflection of all the ways that women are mistreated in our society. We're going into some of the darkest corners of the social media universe, and we might just have a plan to shut it all the hell down. Listen to season two of Under the Influence with Joe Piazza on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Arden Marine from Shameless, Insatiable, Chelsea Lately, and the iHeartRadio podcast, Will You Accept This Rose? And I'm Julianne Robinson, an Emmy and BAFTA-nominated director, most recently of Bridgerton. And we are the hosts of Lady of the Road, a funny and inspiring podcast where we have conversations with influential women about their lives and we get self-help advice. We're always looking to improve ourselves and we figure there's no better source for learning how to be brave, take risks, and advocate for yourself in life than speaking with motivating, uplifting women. Some of whom we've met throughout our careers and some of whom we're just meeting now. We talk about money, health, relationships, parenthood, running a business, you name it, from inspiring women like Joan Jett, Nicole Byer, Lauren Lopkiss, Retta, Ricky Lindholm, Kate Micucci, Kate Walsh, Shondaland producer Betsy Beers, Adjua Ando, Jen Kirkman, and more. Listen and subscribe to Lady of the Road on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Cavalry Audio, the studio that brought you The Devil Within and The Shadow Girls, comes a new true crime podcast, The Pink Moon Murders. The local sheriff believes there may be more than one killer. It's been four days since those bodies were found, and there's no arrest as of this morning. They were afraid, especially out in that area. What if they come back or whatever? It scared me to death. Like, it scared me. It, I was very, very intimidated to live here. Crazy to think you go to sleep one night, maybe snuggling with your loved one, and never wake up. Or maybe you wake up in a struggle for your life, which you lose. Join host David Ratterman as he explores one fateful night when evil descended upon small-town Ohio. Killed eight members of an Ohio family in a pre-planned execution. A family was targeted. Most of them targeted while they were sleeping. The Pink Moon Murders is available on February 22nd, and you can follow The Pink Moon Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Not long after the Diebenkorn family's disconcerting visit to Nodler, a doctor named Bernard Kruger received a phone call he never expected to get. Kruger was a collector, perhaps not a great collector, but an eager one, especially in regard to Richard Diebenkorn's work. He liked to think he had an inside track. He was, after all, Anne Friedman's doctor. He told me he loved Ibn work for many years. And at the time, he was alive in the 90s. And even before that, I think he started buying the first Ibn in the 80s. He had to go through Nodler because at the time, Richard Ibn was alive and Nodler represented him. And what Ben Kruger told me is that Every time he wanted to buy a piece, it was not easy. You would think you have money. You want to buy a piece of art, you walk in and say, I want this. But that's not how it works in the art world. You know, there is no like free market or, 
you know, they sell for whoever they want to sell and they might give a price to me and a different price to you. And the way that Bernard described to me is that Anne Friedman was quite difficult and quite protective. And she would say to him, no, you cannot buy this one. If you want, you can buy this other one. He said to me, I would need to beg to buy. And sometimes she would let me buy and sometimes she wouldn't. And I asked him, why? Why would she do that? And he said, well, that was her way of having power and having control. Despite having an inside track as Anne's doctor, Bernard Kruger was having a difficult time purchasing a work from the artist he most coveted. Surprisingly, all of that would change after Diebenkorn passed away in early 1993. And all of a sudden, Bernard Kruger gets a call from Nodler saying, we have these two Diebenkorns for you to see. You know, they just came in, I think you would like it. I was already like, wait a minute, don't you think that was strange? For years, you've been begging to buy a Diebenkorn. All of a sudden, they are calling you and offering you a Diebenkorn? And he said, no, I thought I was great. I thought I was finally getting a good deal on a Diebenkorn <laughs> because he bought one of them and that was one of the fakes. If I remember the numbers right, he told me the last Diebenkorn he had bought for like 125, 135,000. And that one he bought for $80,000. So again, he was thrilled. He's like, all of a sudden I've been offered a Diebenkorn and it's cheaper than the last one I bought. Nodler did well by those two Diebenkorn sales, earning $45,000 on each. When word of the sale reached the Diebenkorn family, they were shocked. As the late artist's daughter Gretchen said, we thought being the naive people we were and being honest, we basically thought she would simply return them and that would be that. Instead, she wrote a letter to my mother and to me that we had come to the gallery and authenticated these works and therefore she had sold them. And we were very distressed. I wanted to write to Anne and tell her that this was not okay and that we had not authenticated them. She can sell whatever she wants, but she can't say that we authenticated it. And my mother was very shy about being in an antagonistic position with anybody. And she really didn't want me to write for, on behalf of myself or on behalf of her. And so that was dropped. Later, Dr. Kruger would say he had sold the works and had no idea where they were, perhaps. But over the next 15 years, the Diebenkorns would routinely hear of fake Diebenkorn works on paper popping up in the market. Each new appearance meant that some new owner was trying to unload his Diebenkorns, either with or without the knowledge that they were fake. When the works once again vanished, the implication was just as clear. Some new owner had been duped, or worse, set out to con his own next prospective buyer. In the years to come, stories like that would find their way to the Diebenkorn Foundation on a regular basis. Eventually, the family counted some 250 Diebenkorn images around the world, submitted for authentication or just out of curiosity. They ranged 
from the occasional top-drawer forgery to an art student's homage for class credit left in a garage to be celebrated briefly as the real McCoy. Times were tough in the art market of 1995, and few galleries were feeling it as much as Nodler, which had little to live on after Larry Rubin's departure other than its reputation and venerability. I mean, she wasn't making much money at Nodler. I mean, business wasn't good, and so she needed... Something was needed. Yeah. Something really special. Money was needed. (laughs) Still, Anne seemed to harbor lingering concerns about those works. Perhaps she was eager to prove their authenticity to herself and to pave the way for more paintings from Glafira Rosales. Surely Glafira could share with Anne a telling detail or two, details to assure her the works had some shred of provenance. Gently but firmly, Glafira declined to say anything about where the Diebenkorn drawings had come from. She would only say she was representing a man she called Mr. X, Jr., whose parents had passed on to their son more paintings by some of the best-known artists of the post-war period. Soon enough, Anne was calling him Mr. X, Jr., too, and referring to his parents as Mr. and Mrs. X. It sounded a bit silly, but maybe if Anne played ball, Glafira might introduce Anne to Mr. X, Jr. Glafira did say that Mr. X, Jr. had more works to sell if they could be placed discreetly. These were works that had been long stored by Mr. X, hermetically sealed, even. Glafira had said the paintings had been in storage for so long that critics and collectors would be thrilled to see these lost masterpieces finally unwrapped. I have never, and I actually don't have any colleagues who I know who have regularly managed to obtain from a private person a picture for, let's say, $200,000 that then they could sell for $800,000. I mean, it just simply doesn't happen. If somebody came to me and said, I want to sell you this Clifford Still, and I know that the Clifford Still's fair market price would be a million, and they say to me, well, I'm going to sell it to you for 200000 I would think immediately that it was hot. What other conclusion? It's the same in any business, I think. If you're a diamond merchant, somebody comes to you with a diamond and they're selling it to you for 20% of its real value, you would assume that there was something wrong with it. You say no thank you. And if you bought a painting by mistake, letting your passions get the better of you, what would you do when you came to your senses? These things once in a while happen to dealers. You just, you make a mistake, but the minute you do, you recognize it, you give the money back, you know, you, you take it and you learn from it. Otherwise, you lose your reputation completely and utterly. So that's one of the really key things. It wasn't long before Glafira Rosales was back in the Nodler 
this time with a painting by abstract expressionist Mark Rothko under her arm. It was a beautiful work, as Anne described it later, with dark orbs against a pale pink-peach backdrop. And, like the Diebenkorns, it had no provenance, other than the link to Mr. and Mrs. X. I think that they were the consortium, not just Glyphera, right? <laughs> they, they created paintings that were actually quite smart because they were very highly valued. I'm Maria Kondakova. I'm an author, journalist, and psychologist, the author most recently of The Biggest Bluff, and also most relevant to this, The Confidence Game. I mean, let's be honest, abstract expressionism is not necessarily the most technically advanced paintings. Now, I'm not saying that Rothko is not technically advanced. He is. He could paint anything. But for someone who's not, you know, an incredibly technically advanced painter, it's probably easier to create a Rothko than a Rembrandt. One thing that I think you said in your book, Maria, it's very important for the con artist not to move too quickly. That was the whole part of the, what I think you call the long con. Something that con artists, the good con artists, have in abundance is patience. Some cons take decades to play out all the way. So you really need to be able to see the long game and not just be in it for you know the immediate profit. You need to be able to see how does this play out over time. And one thing that you have to hand to Glafira is, you know, she didn't just do her homework on and she did her homework on the art market, how that world works and what people expect. If you walk in right away with 20 Rothkos and a few Pollocks in there, someone's gonna say, okay, hold on one second. We're gonna do some very heavy duty analysis on this. But one at a time, lost treasures, you know, we really don't wanna part with them, but we're, we're selling them piecemeal. That's much more compelling and invites less scrutiny. And she's also building the market for herself because now, even though there was originally no provenance, now a lot of these pieces are in collections and some end up making it to shows and to museums. And so that creates the provenance that this is the collection of Mr. X. And some of these have already been validated by some of the leading galleries and museums and collectors in the world. I think that if someone brought me a Rothko, who I didn't know, and who had no kind of bona fides in the art world, I would be very suspicious. Where did this person get it? And is it, was it stolen? I mean, you don't just go wandering around with Rothkos, right? Anne did show the painting to Christopher Rothko, son of the late artist, who professed to find it beautiful. That was enough for Anne. She bought the painting for $155,000 from Rosales. She sold it to the Michelle Rosenfeld Gallery for $325,000, for a gross profit of 109%. Later, when she heard about the sale, Frances Beatty found Anne's strategy underwhelming. If she showed it to Christopher Rothko, I would say that would be a good first step. But that doesn't tell you where it came from. That doesn't tell you that the person has good title to it. You know, that you would have to 
investigate. Few people knew that Nodler was starting to deal in works without any provenance. The circle had been confined to Glafira and any Confederates she might have, as well as the staffers at the gallery, who could gossip but hardly take on their imperious boss. Leslie Feely recalled seeing one of the Rothkos brought in by Glafira. I just walked in and saw this bright red painting presuming to be a Rothko. I just couldn't even look at it because it was so garish and so not by Rothko. And they were selling it for, at the time, I don't know, a million dollars. It was not that large. And it was clearly a fake. None of these paintings had any provenance, at least of the kind that the art market expected, nor were any in the catalog resume of Mark Rothko or the soon-to-be-completed catalog resume for the late Richard Diebenkorn. How could a, an organization not check the provenance? That's what you're supposed to do for an art fair. You're supposed to check the provenance on any painting, particularly a Rothko. And there it was. Nobody took it out. It was just sitting there. But just to play devil's advocate here, many paintings must meet the market with no provenance because the artist has just finished them, or, or maybe he put them aside and got bored with his painting. In the old days, you had to ask Gene Thaw and Francis O'Connor to write an attestation. I mean, recently there are lots of estates that don't want to write authenticity, which is very problematic. And so what you do is you get people in, you sit them down, and you say, I'm worried about this. You know, this is a picture which has been offered to me. I think it looks beautiful, but it has, I have no provenance on it, and I really need to know what you think about it. You ask a couple of people, and you do your due diligence because you're on the line for it. One of the most important aspects of provenance is that an artwork by a great established artist be readily found in that artist's catalog resume. A catalog resume is done by scholars or a family in which they try to write down every single picture that to date has been attributed to this artist and that they think is legitimate. And typical catalog resumes like the Pollock catalog resume, it says where the work comes from in scrupulous detail. Sometimes it says whether it's been repainted, whether it was in a fire. I mean, you try to get as much information as you possibly can. You try to document every single picture by that artist. You also have to be sure that you're passing something that's legitimate or is considered legitimate by the authorities. Of course, it does sometimes happen that a painting lacks any provenance. It's rare, but it happens. So what do you do? Start calling in the experts and hopefully get them to look at the actual work Invite them to a gallery opening? Steer them to your newly acquired Barnett Newman or Rothko? Is there anything wrong with doing what she did as far as that goes? 
One could argue that Anne, in asking the Diebenkorn family to look at those two works on paper, was acting quite properly. No, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I mean, you want to know what distinguished scholars and what people who are regarded to have what we call in the art business a good eye. In other words, they have you have some reason to believe that you would risk your reputation on their say-so. I guess one important nuance of this is that if you want to get that expert's opinion, you are upfront about asking him rather than sort of inveigling him to come into your office after hours while everyone's downstairs having a glass of wine and you show this picture and the expert says, oh, that's a nice picture, how beautiful. That is not the same thing as authentication, which is sort of the ultimate stamp of approval. This is just an expert perhaps caught a bit uh, away from office hours and saying that looks like a nice painting. It's not proof. Could there ever be a situation where you got enough signatures from experts that people would say, yes, that's real? I mean, now we all know you have it forensically tested. I mean, if you have such a picture that has no provenance and you are very suspicious about, you get it on consignment from whoever it is, and you have it tested, you have to get a complete consensus. You have to have every single person who could question such a thing in line. And then, of course, you have the whole issue of, can you pass good title to this picture? Which is, I think, just as problematic and far more frightening. You are passing good title and guaranteeing the authenticity and the title. That's what the uniform code says you are doing if you write an invoice. The staffers learned to keep their distance when Glafira Rosales's name was mentioned. Whenever something about the Rosales works was discussed, one staffer said, that was a closed-door meeting for Anne. That was unusual. At all other times, the door to Anne's second-floor office was open. Cy Newhouse would step over a rope and come on in, a staffer recalls of the publishing mogul. So the door was only closed for certain sensitive meetings. It was around this time, in 1998, that Anne and Glafira held a staff meeting to discuss how many paintings remained in the mysterious collection. Rosales identified approximately eight works that were still available. There is a, another still, a Gottlieb, two de Koonings, a Motherwell, a Newman, one or two Calders. That's attorney Emily Reisbaum. Over a decade later at trial, attorneys Gregory Clarick, Aaron Kroll, and Emily would present evidence of handwritten notes of this infamous meeting. The lawyers noted something peculiar about Glafira's purported inventory. And then Anne asks, Mother's Day is coming, and Mom doesn't want flowers. She wants a cocktail. Here's a hint. Get Mom Bartesian. It's the countertop cocktail maker that creates your choice of over 60 premium cocktails in less than 30 seconds, each at the touch of a button. Flowers die. Happy hour comes back every day. So get Mom the machine that makes amazing cocktails with real fruit juices and craft bitters. 
Best of all, get $50 off a Bartesian premium cocktail maker with the purchase of one pack of cocktail capsules. So, instead of getting mom a reason to fill a flower vase with water, get mom the easiest, fastest way to fill her glass with the floral notes of gin. The best cocktails are premium cocktails, and the best day to get it for mom is Mother's Day, because you can get $50 off now for a limited time. Visit bartesian.com backslash mother to get the best premium cocktail maker for mom at the best price for you. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. They're a Pollock, and lo and behold... Rizal says, I'll go check. Yeah. <laughs> Let me check. <laughs> she was not on her list. You would think if she had a Jackson Pollock, she would come in and say she had a Jackson Pollock. And then it's, you know, two years later, she, having gone to none, she suddenly has five. Does someone discover a missing Pollock in their attic? Once every decade or so, does something like that pop up? A Rothko that Rothko traded with his dentist for some dental work, does that pop up? Sure. You know, there's one here and there's one there. But are there three? Are there five from the same source? Are there eight? Are there 12? Are there 20? Are there 41? Literally never. Despite her initial estimate of having eight paintings in the collection, Glafira would manage to deliver over 30 more works to Nodler, including five supposed Jackson Pollocks. Surprisingly, Anne treated Nodler's own artists just as harshly as she treated the gallery's assistants. Anne just trashed her own artists, every single one of them, Nodler artist Donald Sutton later said. She would never answer phone calls. She was completely disinterested in the artists she had She kind of ignored everyone who was there. All her dealings were secretive, Sultan said. According to Sultan, Anne was out of her depth after Larry Rubin's departure. Sultan said it was as if the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art... It was like Philippe de Montebello deciding that he's going to turn the thing over to his secretary. According to one staffer who worked closely with her, Anne was not above dramatizing a story to sell a painting. 
There was this painting by Helen Frankenthaler. We had hung on to it for a couple of years, recalls a staffer. A museum director came into Anne's office. Anne had the painting out, and the museum director said, where did that come from? The staffer went on to say there had been a woman killed in a hit and run. This was in the news. She had been an art collector. Anne said, I can't really tell you, but there was a recent tragedy you might have read about in the news, very sad story. The staffer said, in fact, we had bought the painting at auction in 1999 or whatever. An art net search would have shown it hadn't come from this woman's collection. But Anne just lied to this director. Why? We probably got it on the cheap, and Anne was marking it up. On another occasion, Anne took in a double-paneled Milton Avery painting, which was to say that there was a painting on each side of the wood. Instead of showing it that way to the Averys, Anne reportedly had a conservator split the painting down the middle and get two saleable works instead of one, at considerably greater profit to her and the gallery. I asked Francis if this was typical in any way for a gallery director. Never in a million years. I mean, I, you know, you hear these stories about people doing them in the kind of olden days, but no one would imagine doing that in my era. It's a kind of vandalization of an object that you certainly can't do without enormous thought and, I would think, consultation with lots of other people. We'll be right back. On the latest season of the Next Question with Katie Couric podcast, Katie dives into, well, Katie. Hear exclusive podcast-only conversations between Katie and the people who made her memoir going there possible. We spent a lot of time together uh, around a dining room table here and in the city and... You know, it it was a very intense experience. All episodes of Next Question with Katie Couric are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, guys? I'm Rashad Bilal. And I am Troy Millings, and we are the hosts of the Earn Your Leisure podcast, where we break down business models and examine the latest trends in finance. We hold court and have exclusive interviews with some of the biggest names in business, sport and entertainment. From DJ Khaled to Mark Cuban, Rick Ross, and Shaquille O'Neal, I mean, our alumni list is expansive. Listen in as our guests reveal their business models, hardships, and triumphs in their respective fields. The knowledge is in-depth, and the questions are always delivered from your standpoint. We want to know what you want to know. We talk to the legends of business, sports, and entertainment about how they got their start, and most importantly, how they make their money. Earn Your Leisure is a college business class mixed with pop culture. Want to learn about the real estate game? Unclear as how the stock market works? We got you. Interested in starting a trucking company or a vending machine business? Not really sure about how taxes or credit work? We got it all covered. The Earn Your Leisure podcast is available now. Listen to Earn Your Leisure on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Scott Rank, host of the podcast History Unplugged. And if you're dreaming of being a full-time podcaster someday, you and I have a lot in common. I used to teach history for a living, which was great, but I wanted something more. And maybe you know what I mean. So I gave podcasting a try, and I did it with Spreaker from iHeart. I could explain how it works in about 90 seconds, but all you really need to know now is that in my experience, 
the ad revenue with Spreaker has been three to four times higher than it has been with any other host I've worked with. Now I get to do what I'm passionate about, teach history, but with more freedom and less stress while still earning a respectable salary. From just getting started and doing the very basic stuff to taking your podcast in whatever direction you want to take it, Spreaker has all sorts of great tools. So if you want to turn your passion into a podcast and give this a try, visit Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Get paid to talk about the things you love with Spreaker from iHeart. Sometimes Anne seemed drawn by the sheer challenge of a newly arrived work. Someone might come off the street with a calder and a story, recalls one staffer. It was my father's, and he passed away. I'm trying to sell it. Inevitably, the owner didn't want to wait long enough to put the calder up for auction. The provenance sounded sketchy, but Anne went upstairs where the finances were done and ended up buying it for cash. The staffer said, I was thinking either there's something wrong or you're taking this painting and will sell it for two or three times the amount. I was seeing this for the first time. It was an indication to me. Over the next year or two, other Diebenkorn works on paper came in from Glafira Rosales. Like the first ones, they were Ocean Park abstracts. But they were different in one sense. According to Rosales, they came from the Vijande Gallery in Madrid, indicated by the seemingly well-worn label on the back of each one. The Diebenkorn family's doubts about those first two drawings seemed to have worried Anne Friedman, too. She had written a letter to Rosales asking for at least some provenance on the newly surfaced Vijande Gallery Ocean Parks. Leslie Feely recalls Anne's searches for provenance. She would be in touch with people who used to work at the National Gallery, like E.A. Carmine. I mean, she tried to find names that would fool people. And she lied and lied and made up these fake provenances. I believe from the beginning she knew these were fakes. They had no provenances. She made up provenances every day. The Vijande Gallery works troubled the Diebenkorn family as well. We began looking up Vijande Gallery, and it all seemed very strange because all the work that they had handled, you can't talk to anybody, they're all dead. But the works that they did handle when they were in existence were very, very different from the work that my father did. Things like uh, Picasso and uh, some of the earlier abstract people. I just remember thinking, wow, that just seems odd. Apparently, Rosales had made some calls and came up with provenance for the Vajande Gallery Diebenkorns. The key figure was a Spanish restaurant owner named Cesario Fontanla. Supposedly, he told Rosales that he had owned a restaurant called Taverna Cesar on Fleming Street near Madrid's Castellana Plaza from the late 1970s until 1985. The Taverna Cesar had been a hangout for artists. Everyone from Francis Bacon to Andy Warhol had frequented the place, or so Rosales heard. Nearby was the Vajande Gallery, said Cesario Fontenla, where many of those artists had shown. Fernando Vijande would often bring them over to the Taverna Cesar. Diebenkorn had been one of the regulars. 
and in a time-honored artistic tradition, had often paid off his bar bills with art or traded his own art. The nimble César Fontenla had procured his Diebenkorns that way and kept them for all those intervening years, he said, and was selling them only now after Diebenkorn's death. It was a fine story, except that Rodrigo Vijande, the late gallery owner's son, found it preposterous. First, he had never heard of the Taverna César. He would have known it well if his father patronized it. He would have known which artists hung out there, too, because Rodrigo had helped run the gallery with his father and knew 90% of its artists upon his father's death in 1986. The most off-key detail of César Fontenla's story was the Taverna's address. Even if it had existed, it wouldn't have been a hangout for artists from the Vijande Gallery because its supposed address on Fleming Street was two or three miles from the gallery. Both galleries that my father owned in Madrid were right where he lived, in front of his house on Núñez de Balboa in the center of Madrid, Rodrigo explained. Moreover, Vijande didn't drive. That, declared his son Rodrigo, was why he lived some 50 yards from his galleries. At first, Anne Friedman may have believed the Vijande gallery story. Certainly she wanted to believe it. If it was true, it might validate the half-dozen other such ocean parks that Glafira Rosales was bringing in one by one with their now distinctive Vijande gallery labels. It cast a glow of authenticity over all the Ocean Park Diebenkorns and over Glafira Rosales herself. But a label isn't provenance. It's just a label. If the label had been part of a paper trail of ownership, the result would have been picture-perfect provenance. In this case, the trail petered out as soon as it began. Was it fair to say that every time you saw a Diebenkorn Ocean Park that had a Vijande label on back, that it was almost certainly fake? I think one could say that, yes. <laughs> she swears that she didn't know, which seems hard to believe. That's Nodler artist Michael David again. Should she have known? Yeah. And is this business fraught with people cutting corners with fraud? Absolutely. Anne Friedman had her deep in corns with Vijande gallery labels, but she pressed Rosales for more proof of the work's provenance. If she wasn't going to uncover an actual paper trail, she could do the next best thing. She could find experts on the painters whose works were coming in from Mr. X Jr. Already she had done that with Chris Rothko, the late artist's son. Since then, another Rothko expert, David Anfam, had praised it too. Anne would do her part, seeking out more art world academics who might inspect the paintings as they came in and find that they were true. But couldn't Lafira do something to fill in the story of the X family and arrange for Anne to meet Mr. X Jr. at last? Not yet, Rosales deflected. Soon, she felt. Soon. But then came the most astonishing accident, one that seemed to prove beyond doubt that Mr. X and his paintings were real after all.
In their conversations, Glafira and Anne often talked about art of the post-war period. Glafira knew a lot, enough to impress Anne, and the two women shared their favorite artists, one of whom was Clifford Still. In most cases, Glafira would go through Mr. X's collection, searching for a painting by one of the artists Anne had spoken of with great admiration. Miraculously, Glafira would find one. Glafira Rosales told investigators that the galleries would often ask her for specific things without asking many questions where it came from. So think about this. You are a gallery and you are buying painting after painting from this woman from Mexico who says she's representing a famous collector. So then as a gallery owner, I turn to her and say, so do you think he might happen to have some mother will? And then a few weeks later, she comes with the mother will. I mean, what is really the likelihood that this would happen? Anne would then ask her to send an image of the work. If it met with her approval, Anne would ask Glafira to bring the painting in. A standard routine was followed. The painting was put in the trunk of Mr. X Jr.'s car and transported to a photographer's studio. Pictures were duly taken and the painting was then put back in the trunk of the car. The plan, as usual, was to send the transparencies once they came back from the studio to Anne at the Nodler. Anne would then decide if the painting met with her approval. Only then would the painting be sent to the gallery. Rosales soon called Friedman with terrible news. While the driver was bringing Mr. X's Clifford Still painting from the photographer's studio, she said, there had been an accident. The car had a rear engine, and the engine had caught fire. The painting was nearly destroyed, all but a fragment. When she got over her shock, Anne told Rosales to bring her the fragment. The painting was indeed badly burned. It would have been two and a half feet by three feet, Friedman said later. Indeed, nearly all of the paintings Rosales would bring were of medium scale. To Anne, it made absolute sense that the painting had been stored in the trunk. Anne was fascinated with the fragment, and more so with the transparency that accompanied it. The transparency, after all, showed the whole painting before it was consumed by fire on the drive back to Mr. X Jr.'s house. You could see the whole thing, and with a fragment, you can analyze the front and back differently. You can do a touch and feel about it, Anne later said. Later, in telling that story, Anne would beam with triumph. Quote, would a con artist burn the painting and then save a fragment so it could be forensically examined? If the painting wasn't real, wouldn't that make it obvious? Unquote. Everything checked out, Anne declared, including that in one of the pigments that Clifford Still used in many paintings, there's an oxidation that happens, proof positive. The pigment proved the painting was real, or so felt Anne. As for the burned fragment, Anne kept it as proof that the first Clifford Still Mr. X Jr. had sold her had been real as well. One staffer recalled that the fragment was kept in a flat white portfolio. You could see the burn marks on the edges. It was Anne Friedman's own Shroud of Turin. 
Conveniently, Mr. X Jr. managed to find another Clifford still in storage and sent it along. Anne, in turn, took it to the annual Art Dealers Association of America show at the New York Armory. Bill Rubin came by in a wheelchair, Anne said, of the famous director of the Museum of Modern Art and brother of the Nodler's former director, Larry Rubin, whom Anne had dispatched from the Nodler. According to Friedman, Bill Rubin looked hard at the Clifford Still and said, yes, that's a cliff painting. I turned it around for him and he confirmed that it was a Clifford Still painting. Bill Rubin had been duped by the Rosavas ring too. In reality, none of the details in Glafira's story of the burned Clifford Still painting were true. Now, we know no fire really happened, right? It did. It did happen, <laughs> actually. Carlos was preparing the pieces, and he was uh, treating them with hair dryers and putting them in cold and hot temperatures. So that one got burned because he uh, forgot to turn the hair dryer off, and, of course, it went in flames. And now Anne is waiting for the piece. And what is the explanation I'm going to give? Carlos told me, we'll tell them this. I want people to know that I have never talked to nobody. I have never been interviewed about my life or about this case, except for the government, of course. More from Glafira Rosales herself next time on Art Fraud. You have the cool, clear eyes of a seeker of wisdom and truth. Yet there's that upturned chin and the grin of impetuous youth. Oh, I believe in you. I believe in you. Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, myself, and Michael Schneerson. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. Did you know that on the day Dr. King was shot, the all-black security detail normally assigned to him was called off? They are the ones who would not allow him to stay at any hotel with balconies. Chief Wallace, did you ever ask what this was all about? Yes. And what were you told? Told that I had been threatened. This is the MLK Tapes. The first episodes are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Conquer your New Year's resolutions with the Before Breakfast podcast. In each bite-sized daily episode, you'll learn how to make the most of your time with practical tools to help you feel less busy and get more done. Listen to Before Breakfast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Scott Rank, host of the podcast History Unplugged. 
Now, it really is a dream come true to get paid to talk about history without all the stress while still being able to make a living. And I did it with Spreaker from iHeart. Not only do they make it super easy to monetize my podcast, but ad revenue is three to four times higher with Spreaker than with any other host I've worked with. So if you want to turn your passion into a podcast and give this a try, visit Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Get paid to talk about the things you love. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com. Come.